listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. Okay, Jeff. So today we are going to talk about storytelling. I know, I know. Don't roll your eyes. So, so storytelling is the new brand, right? You know, it's the new annoying buzzword in the marketing community that has been bantered around so much over the last few years. And But we're going to wade into it nonetheless, because I think we're going to take a little different take on this. As you know, we've written a series of articles about storytelling, really about applying storytelling to thought leadership marketing, and really maybe broader to professional services marketing in general. And so we're going to wade into some of the thinking in some of those articles together. So let me punt it to you. Where where do you want to start? Because you've read some of the things we've written about this recently. Where do you think is the most interesting place to start? Well, when you threw this subject our way, I did kind of harump. (laughs) Harump. Is that a word, by the way? It's not a word. Yeah, I don't know. Where I come from, it's it's a word. If not, I have the latitude to make it. You know, we talk on one of our podcasts about how marketing ruins everything and how they jump an idea and run it into the ground. And I think storytelling is one of those things. So I hope listeners, you know, don't depart <laughs> right now with the setup. I honestly think storytelling is really important. And we touched on this when we talked about the challenger sale versus insight selling and how using certain language in in setup makes those messages memorable. But I like this idea for a much bigger reason. One of my favorite writers, books, thinkers is Joseph Campbell. And he wrote a book called Hero with a Thousand Faces. Phenomenal piece, probably his opus that I just absolutely love. And I got to the book after reading Power of Myth, which was an interview that Joseph Campbell did. And I think our society has lost that depth of storytelling. You know, when we have sitcoms and you have problem resolution in, you know, 20 minutes with a few commercials thrown in, It's not very compelling and it's very formulaic, but I think if you're telling a great story and we know this from literature and we've talked about, you know, how much people read or or don't read, it is the story and the story structure, the protagonists and the antagonists and overcoming obstacles that just sucks us in. And there's only a few Pulitzer Prize winners every year because it is really hard to tell a great story. So I want to delve into this because I think there's a lot of room for improvement, a lot of low-hanging fruit that tells such a better story than most professional services firms tell by just throwing up some data points. So I'm looking forward to this. I think people are really going to get a lot of value out of this conversation. Yeah, I I come at this from a couple of angles. I mean, you know, angle number one is you read a lot of thought leadership. I read a lot of thought leadership. We we consume a lot of thinking in our daily lives. And and yet I I reflect on it in so little of it, I actually can recall or apply or retain. There's just so much that I consume and so much that I actually forget that I'm appalled with how little I can recall and actually apply. And yet 
to your point, when I'm when I'm invested in a in a great story, you know, I, I wrote an article about this, and the example I gave was the marvelous Mrs. Maisel from Amazon in Amazon series. It just drew me in, and it I can remember the moments, I can remember the emotions of the characters involved, I can remember you know intimate details of the story at various points along the journey, and it just struck me as. As thought leadership marketers, where we tend to fall down is that we rush to share, you know, our great compelling point of view or our best practices or our leaders and laggards or whatever, you know, magical insight we found in our research or in our client work. And we're, and we're rushing to share it, but we don't step back to think about how we're going to get clients to remember it and act upon it. And that's storytelling to me. It's, it's how do I get the client to retain it and do something with it? And so that's the lens we tried to layer on top of it was say, well, wait a minute. So that's sort of, I guess that's lens number one. Lens number two, when I think about it, is that we've done a lot of thought leadership campaigns with our clients over the years. And the thing I've noticed when I reflect on all those campaigns is that, and you hear this in the content marketing community a lot, this idea of repurposing content. Well, you've got this, this, this ebook, you should repurpose it as a blog, you should repurpose it as an infographic, repurpose it as a video. And they're all disparate, separate assets that have very limited relationship to each other. Meaning that, yes, they're all connected, they're different derivatives of the same idea, but they're not told in, an, in a story arc. They're not, they're not sequenced together in any logical way. The analogy I used in my article was that thought leadership campaigns look more like Amazon radio stations, where you know you can basically turn the station on and it can randomize the songs in any order, and they all fit in the same genre, but they don't follow any logical sequence. Mm. Whereas mm-hmm. an Amazon series, you know, like the series I described, is obviously a story following a logical sequence. And I would argue that's where thought leadership marketers need to go, as they need to say, well, you know, this idea of repurposing content is, is, is garbage. It's a garbage idea. The idea should be, what is the arc of the story that I'm trying to lead my client through? And what are the various content assets? What are the various chapters and episodes in that story that are going to get them where I want them to be in terms of understanding the concepts, retaining them, applying them, and ultimately then engaging with us? That's the two lenses where it hit me, I guess, over the last three or four months. And we've started delving into this more and starting to apply it to our client work more rigidly, not rigidly, more strategic, more frequently, strategically. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we've talked about storytelling for, you mm-hmm. know, on, on the side for a couple of years, mm-hmm. but I, this was the first we've kind of said, well, wait a minute, this should be part of our framework. So mm-hmm. let's jump in and start talking about these story types that you're using. We pulled from a book called The Seven Basic Plots by a guy named Christopher Booker. I always want to call him Cory Booker. But, uh, <laughs> he's a different guy. I wish it was by Cory Booker. That guy's done everything else, right? So we pulled from something called The Seven Basic Plots, which is bannered around the marketing community for a while. So this is not like we're you know the first ones to apply this. But what we started to do is sort of look at this under the lens of, well, there are these seven basic plots and you find them in all the great stories that you've been captivated by or 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 enjoyed. And then we started to say, well, how, where do we see these being applied in thought leadership? How do we apply them in thought leadership? How do we apply them in marketing a firm? How do we use them as a framework to do better, better work, you know, to have, do more impactful work for our clients, right? I mean, we can go through all seven, we can do whatever you want to do. I want to go through all seven. 
All right, now I will be the first in saying that I don't fashion myself as an expert on these seven basic plots. We're, we're certainly creating value as helping our clients think about how to apply them, really. That's really what it comes down to. But the first plot is this notion of overcoming the monster. And it's we've used this one for a number of years in developing case stories. And it's and it's a very straightforward plot, right? It's, it's the idea that there's this larger-than-life monster that's overtaking everything. And, you know, the, the hero is in a battle to, to strike down the monster. It's the classic David and Goliath story. We've used it for years now as, a, as our number one framework for case stories. The idea that the client is facing this massive monster that is the, the business problem they face. It's conventional wisdom. It's conventional thinking inside their firm, whatever it might be. It's the problem they're trying to overcome. And they're going to strike that that monster down through their strength and courage. And we always like to say that the firm, the consulting firm per se, is the is not the protagonist in the story. The client's the protagonist. The, the firm is more like the sword. They're more like the, the resource. They're the courage that gave the client the ability to strike it down. I mean, we use that framework a lot in case story development. We use it a lot whenever we are developing thought leadership where we're trying to attack conventional wisdom. So conventional belief systems. So, you know, the market thinks this way and we want them to think a different way. So we'll use it as a framework to tell stories around that. You said something that struck me as one of the, the fatal flaws of most thought leadership. And it's that the client is the hero. Correct. Most, Always. most firms make <laughs> their firm the hero. Yeah. But it really is the client who gets to play the part of the hero. And I think that's probably where firms go off the trail right out of the gate because our egos get in the way of how we tell the story. But just that one change will make a huge difference in how thought leadership resonates with your clients. And it's so interesting too, because you know, Bob Bidet and I have talked about this for years, but just this idea that clients don't want their stories to be told. And that's kind of true, mostly not in my experience. It's kind of true. Yeah, they don't want to expose to the world all their mistakes and all their warts. But yeah, they do want to tell the world about how they are doing things exceptionally well and how they've overcome challenges as organizations. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, we use the word case story. We, we try to coach our clients. It's a case story, not a case study. And the reason we do that is to get them to change the, the, the tense, to change it from, let's talk about how great we are and all the great things we did for this client that was completely dysfunctional to, hey, this is a client that's working through these challenges and it's their story to be told, not ours. We're just the lever that helped them get there. Some of our clients buy into that. Some of them don't, right? They're like, they literally will go through, you know, a proposal or a document and they'll strike out all the times we mentioned story and replace it with study. <laughs> Again, that, that, that just perfectly illustrates that kind of Nonfiction fiction perspective. It's all data. It's all factual versus, you know, something softer. I mean, study just sounds academic and business like and story just seems too, too soft. You know, it's as I was reading your articles on this, the overcoming the monster is very much at the heart of the BS of PS at professional services. I mean, the monster mm. is that culture that gets in the way of of healthy growth and building a legacy firm 
because this human behavior just manifests itself in a very negative way. But the BS of PS is very much the overcoming the monster storyline. Yeah, and, and you're you're right, and and you and essentially you're applying that story archetype to your own thought leadership because you're telling all kinds of stories around that. You know, that's a prudent pedal example. But who does this well? Who's who's using the overcoming the monster well? Well, the one example I use a lot is Deloitte did a case story around their work with Yamaha years ago around enabling the customer service function of Yamaha using a variety of of different processes and approaches and technologies. It's really one of the best case stories I've ever seen produced. And the reason that it's so well done is because it it strikes to the heart of the challenge, right? What is the challenge that Yamaha was facing? What is the monster that's holding them back from being successful as a you know in the customer service function of their organization? And then how did they enable tools, technologies, and processes to overcome them? And what's what's really elegant about the whole thing that we've used it as a reference point many times is just that Deloitte never puts themselves front and center in the whole thing. They're always off to the side. It's very clear that they were the advisor, but they're not grabbing the limelight. And mm-hmm. so that's an mm-hmm. example we've used a lot. So the overcoming the monster is very much, I would think it's a kind of a standard thought leadership approach or an easy one, maybe an easy one, because the client is the hero and the monster more often than not is some competitive situation that the client is in, whether it's a competitor that they're fighting against or a complete change in the market in which they're playing, whether that's, you know, from the 80s, American car makers being outproduced in terms of quality by the Japanese or the 90s and the advent of the internet and the bricks and mortar versus the click companies and how are they adjusting to attack that that monster. So I think that one is is relatively straightforward and pretty standard. Should we move on to the next one? Sure. Uh, the next one is rags to riches. And of course, it's the, it's, the, it's the classic story, you know, of someone coming from a place of not much success to a place of great success, right? It's the Cinderella story. It's Annie. It's Aladdin. It's any one of those stories. One of the interesting things about this archetype in general is the idea that you want the protagonist to feel some success and then have a failure and then find success again. So if you think about those stories, that's usually how they play out. Sounds like a romantic comedy. Yeah, I mean, it kind of does. Meet the girl, boy meets girl, boy loses girl, (laughs) boy gets girl back. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've seen our clients apply apply this framework also for case stories a lot. Just the idea of anytime you can show demonstrable gains, you know, significant gains from a place of relative weakness to a place of extreme strength. Obviously, it's a great framework to use to tell those types of stories. LDK has done that uh, with a number of their case stories very, very well, where they talk about, you know, accelerating, you know, massive amounts of growth over decades of time with certain client relationships and how they did that or how they were a partner in doing that. I like this story from a thought leadership perspective, because it essentially says that we had a problem, we overcame that problem, but we rested on our laurels and the problem came back again. 
So we learned, but we didn't learn exactly <laughs> what it was we were supposed to learn, but we had the grit and tenacity and one would even say humility to say, we have to learn again and keep going. And to me, this is a story arc of most successful companies is you have success, you plateau, others catch up with you, you have to adjust. And that process never ends. Yeah, it's funny. Like you said, I always like to think about growth like a pumping heart, you know, so, mm. you, you know, you there's this one of the fallacies when you get a strategic a strategic plan from a firm and they and they're projecting you know straight line fifteen percent growth for eight straight years or something. I always laugh because I'm like it's just never going to play out that way. It's going to play out like a pumping heart, right? You pump the heart, it grows thirty percent, and then it declines five, and then it, you pump it again, and it goes twenty percent, and then it goes flat. In my experience, that's how growth tends to happen. It tends to go in spurts and starts and. And, and I, the same is true of sort of knowledge development. And like you just said, you solve the problem and then it comes back in a different form and it looks different. And now you have to solve it again. And it, it's difficult to tell these types of stories just because they're long arching, right? We've done this in some of our client case stories where you try to follow, lead the client through this journey of discovery, how our client actually went through that journey of discovery. And it's hard for them to follow it. And it's hard for them to, to stay engaged through the whole journey because they only relate to certain ports. of. They may only relate to like step one of the journey and they, and they won't relate to step three or four yet. Mm. It's almost like a biography. Yeah. Because it plays out over such a, a long time. What I really like about this story and the way you articulated it in your blog post is there's learning along the way, but it's the concept of the struggle, the the overcoming. And I used I, I don't know if I would refer to it as as rags to riches, but I shared in a piece the struggles and the learning that I went through as a, a CMO. And the piece is called the 20 biggest brand mistakes firms make and how to avoid them. And I know the 20 biggest brand mistakes because I made them all. Yeah, yeah I made them all. Yeah. I made them all. And it was really hard to admit that, to say, oh, gosh, I wish I knew then what I know now. But you have to have some courage to share this story. Because you have to be vulnerable. But to me, it's the most relatable. When you see stories of entrepreneurial success or firms having success, failing and reinventing themselves and coming back, that to me is a shot of encouragement in the arm. And it says, oh, man, I'm not competing against some perfect hero, but that that person is a lot like me. And if they made it, I can make it, too. Yeah, you know, you're right. I mean, that archetype I find is a great one to apply to sort of just corporate brand stories in general. You know, so mm -hmm. when you're telling like the backstory of a company or the backstory of a firm, assuming that that, you know, exists, you know, that that sort of classic tech company comes out of a garage type of story, you know, where there's this notion that it was the Midas touch that the founder, everything they touched turned to gold. But usually there was these incredible moments along the way where almost everything failed. Everything almost went off the rails. And mm -hmm. something enabled them to get through and find their way forward. 
And those are the really interesting stories. I think that when organizations tell them, they're more likely to get just sort of buy-in from the client, right? The client is like, they can relate to that story. Oh my gosh, you guys went through that as a company. That's really interesting to know. It's really interesting to understand. You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy, Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. You've alluded to this, but you haven't I don't think you've said it expressly, and maybe now is a good time to say it, is we're talking about using thought leadership, our stories in thought leadership, but there really are, which is marketing, if you will, but there really is a brand story, story type. There is a thought leadership marketing, you know, take your message to market story type. And I would say there's even a very one-on-one type of story type that happens at sales, you know, when we're talking one-on-one with the client. And there needs to be continuity across all three of those. But this, your concept really applies at all three of those levels. Yeah, I totally agree. In fact, when we first published this, limiting it to thought leadership felt a little too narrow. But then I didn't really like the idea of, of it being so broad that we're saying, well, you apply this to branding, you apply this to whatever. So we sort of narrowed it in. I, I maintain you can apply any one of these archetypes to narrowly to any thought leadership campaign you might run. But to your point, they really come out in really strong ways in other areas of the practice. You know, I know we've alluded to the challenger sale a couple of times and buried in the book, the challenger sale, they actually put in there the arc of a teaching pitch, I think is what they call it, where it's essentially an example of the presentation that a sales rep might take Mm -hmm. to educate a client in a one-on-one session. But what I loved about that, they don't use necessarily the archetypes, but they literally focus on the emotional state you want the client to be in as you go through this pitch. And it's the same idea. It's the idea of, of, of being aware and recognizing that the client has an emotional state that's tied to their buying journey. And you can, if you understand that, you can speak to it and, and, and you can work with it more effectively. And they do that really, really well in that, in that section of the book. And he's sort of giving you a roadmap on how to do that in a one-on-one setting, as you just alluded. I like that. We're, we're short on time for this episode. What my suggestion would be, we've got five more plots to cover, so five more archetypes. Why don't we cover one? And then we'll call it a day and we'll come back another time and do the last four. Does that sound good to you? Sounds like a plan. All right. So the third basic plot, as Christopher Booker describes it, is, is the quest. And this is sort of that fairly obvious one. It's, it's the notion that the hero is on, is on a quest. They're on a journey to access an object, accomplish something you know, meaningful. The, the best example for me is obviously Lord of the Rings, right? You know, the, the Hobbit is literally on a quest to deliver the ring back into the fires of Mordor, right? So the, the, the whole story is this journey to accomplish this very specific task. And to your point, you know, for us, we've applied that framework with a lot of success in developing point of view for a firm. So it's 
this notion of, well, what is the big compelling world issue that you're trying to solve as a firm? What is it that you're on a quest to do as a firm? That's just the guiding light that governs everything that you do, how you do it, and why you do it. And so we've used that. In fact, we use that, that exact framework when we're developing corporate messaging with clients. We will literally have that conversation with them. We'll ask them those types of questions to say, well, what is it that your clients continually get wrong that you're trying to help change over and over and over again? What is the one thing that you want to, you know, if after 30 years in, in practice, you could change one thing in the world, what would it be? And that becomes sort of the essence of the quest. One of our clients, you know them, you've worked with them, is TBM Consulting. And, and the Quest model is the backbone of their point of view as a firm. Mm, yes, the point of view much. is that speed wins. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's that speed is going to beat strategy. Speed is going to beat really anything. That They feel strongly if they can make their clients faster, they will make their clients grow faster, more successful, more competitive, all those things. And so they're just sort of on this endless quest that never really ends to bring more and more speed to every client they work with. And so it's sort of a... We, we've just found it to be a really great archetype to use to really find a compelling point of view for many of our clients. I really like this one. In many ways, it pulls in the other story types. And this is the one that probably is most aligned with where I've studied this in, in Joseph Campbell and the Hero of the Thousand Faces. And there are some things that Campbell talks about in in his book. I may butcher these because it's been a while since I've I've read them, but it, it really stood out to me. And it's so consistent with the client as hero. And the first step was, you know, kind of the call to the adventure, to the quest. Yeah. And you talked about the Lord of the, the Rings and how that, you know, here we are in the Shire and <laughs> we're very happy. Yeah, but life is good. And all of a sudden I'm yeah. being asked to do what? Yeah, I'm sorry, but <laughs> you have to go. What, what do you mean me? There's millions of other people that can do that. I'm not doing that. Right. <laughs> Which is the second step of the hero's journey is the refusal or the reluctance to go on the quest. I, I'm not going. I don't want to go. I'm the wrong person. Don't send me. I don't want to go. And I think our clients kind of follow that trajectory. You know, you've got a problem, but but I don't want to see the problem. I don't want to deal with the problem. Why do I have to put my career on the risk to tackle this problem? So there's a reluctance to put, you know, stick their head up out of the foxhole, if you will. But the element, and you see this in in your example of Lord of the Rings, is supernatural aid. When you least expect it, it appears, or the hero has been given some odd tool. I think in Lord of the Rings, you know, it was the sword that lit up when orcs were around. There was some other... You remember the story better than I do. Yeah, <laughs> I don't remember that one. Well. Some other armor that, you know, had a certain protection factor to it. But I mean, when you go back and you look at, at Greek mythology, whether it's, you know, Perseus or Odysseus or Hercules or whatever, there's always some intervention by a recalcitrant god who comes out and helps them. And I think in terms of storytelling, that's where a firm can interject themselves as that supernatural aid to give the hero their tool to continue the quest. 
Yeah, I, I, that's a really great point. I wasn't sure where you were going there for a little while, but the <laughs> the interesting thing about like, so I was thinking to myself, I'm like, you know, in this in this world of fiction, these you know the the, the light sword appears, but does that really happen in the real world? But but what I like about it is that there are times I think firms believe that the client discovered the problem, picked up the phone, called them to solve it, and that was sort of the totality of the experience. Mm-hmm. When that's not usually the case. Usually the case is like you said, the client discovered the problem. And then they just they struggled through it for a really long time. They worked at it for a really long time, and they kept getting more and more frustrated as they couldn't seem to unlock the solution. And then eventually, the the firm appears, and the firm is this sword that lights up that that solve, illuminates the problem and, and and how to solve it, and then it gets solved. Mm-hmm. And and so I, I like the way you framed it. So on that note, let's take a wrap, and we will when we get back together next time, we will dive into the remaining four archetypes and their application to marketing the firm. And then in the in the meantime, I would just encourage listeners just to take a moment to go to this particular article on the seven basic plots and how they're they're applied to thought leadership marketing and professional services marketing as a reference. And you can use that as we talk them through in the next episode. So thanks for going on this journey with me, Jeff. On this quest? Yes, this quest. Uh, is it <laughs> right? Journey? Journey? It be rags and rags. I don't know. <laughs> All right, I'll talk to you next time. See you, buddy. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher. Oh, oh, oh.